0: Hey, TMC followers, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a five-star review. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put
1: into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkoff.
0: Hey there, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. It's great to have each of you on board today, the very first Sunday after Easter. As I'm excited, 50 days of Eastertide, uh,
1: celebrating the resurrection, man. I've, I've banked, I've put all my chips in, as it were, on the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. That's what the center of my life is, and uh, unapologetically Christian, and I'm grateful for what this season um, among many things, but a season of hope, and uh, I'm just grateful today.
0: You talk about the resurrection, and we talk about that obviously, but I'm just curious: why is it so important to you? I'm kind of asking you this off the cuff here, but why is this season especially important to you?
1: Well, I think everything in the Christian message. I think it's it's fitting that we're having Mark on today to talk about apologetics. But for me, um, everything I believe hinges on the belief that Jesus rose from the dead, and. If he didn't, then everything I'm doing is essentially nothing more than a social club. And worse than that, like I'm deluding myself, I'm still in my sins, and uh, there's no hope of life beyond the grave. We haven't Mm. solved the human problem of death. The sting of death would still be real. Um, So I'm I'm intensely grateful today for the implications of that resurrection. And it is a belief, like to be clear. um, I have many friends that don't believe in, in a resurrection, but I think there's enough... There's a enough proof for a reasonable faith, and because of that, I've I've staked my whole life on that, and it's, uh, unapologetic. It's
0: in, yeah, well, it's interesting. People come to faith in different ways, right? We've had people on that's heavily experiential, right? Something happened at Dreams and Visions, right? We had Tom Doyle on, and all of a yeah. sudden, man, God is real to a person. But then others take a very more uh, reasonable approach where the facts line up. And so maybe there's someone watching, listening today where the facts haven't really lined up for them and that the idea of Christianity just doesn't make sense. So Mark Lanier, I mean, we could go through, I could literally read for about 10 minutes here his bio, attorney, author, teacher, pastor, an expert storyteller. And um, he's founded the Lanier Law Firm, which has offices in Houston, New York and Los Angeles. And um, in addition to being an author, uh, he, is a, he teaches a, 70, a 750 plus member Sunday school class focusing on biblical literacy at Champion Forest Baptist Church, which I love that because there's so much interaction, obviously, he's had probably with skeptics and people that are bouncing ideas off him. So I love that. Been featured in articles in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, American Lawyer, uh, and so forth. So without any further ado, uh Mark Lanier, thank you for joining the Monday Christian Podcast.
2: Hey, I'm really stoked about being on this. You know, listening to you and Dave talk here in the intro, I was reminded of, of the fact that Paul will often write and speak about a crucified Jesus, but he mm. never speaks of a dead Jesus because Jesus is not dead. Jesus is resurrected. And Paul says in First Corinthians 15, what Dave just said so well, and that is, you know, not, not only is it a fact that was visually witnessed and attested to by hundreds of people that were still alive in that day who had truly given all their possessions, their, their whole life into that truth, but, but Paul says, if it's not true, then we're all a bunch of idiots for believing yeah. this stuff. And, and I hitting. really loved the way you started your show out.
0: How did you come to faith in Christ? Was it a very systematic approach? It's really, to me interesting to look
2: back at my life, because I was brought up in a home where both my parents taught us that God was real, that Jesus uh, really did die, He died for our sins, He was physically resurrected. He will come again. And I was taught that at a very early age and and believed it. My parents had no reason to lie to me, and they sure seemed to know more than I did. and and so I came to faith in that venue, but, As I got older, I began to say, gee, did I come to faith only because of that? Or is there objective truth to this faith? And of course, I took an undergraduate degree in biblical languages and and learned to translate the Bible as part of my studies. But I took that and went to law school and learned what it meant to research and to, to try and discern and find truth. And I melded those together in my life so that while I may have started believing because of my family of origin, uh, uh, I am a believer today because it makes more sense to me than anything else I can think of.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Dave teaches at a Christian college. And Dave, I'd be curious to bring you in here and get your perspective. When you find the kids come and they are raised in a Christian environment, do they follow a similar path to what Mark shared? What's been your experience?
1: I think there's such a, a commonality in a lot of folks' stories that that don't come to faith later when when they come to faith early in Christ, I think there's such a if if you know especially if you had a good home and you were you were in church a lot and you experienced the beauty of corporate worship and family a lot of these good things, um, I think we end up taking so many things for granted and then as we sort of get out of the nest and some of those beliefs begin to get challenged. Um, I know Ez and I, we've talked quite a bit about deconstruction, Mark, but sort of the, the renovating and the questioning process, I think material—I think folks want, as part of the stuff in the blender, s- some objective things. I don't, I don't think it, like, by itself is sufficient, but I think maybe some of the training that maybe they lacked um, is why there's such a, a need for writings like yours in the, in the church—
0: in the- Mark did you go through a deconstruction phase we kind of tore down your face what did that I, look
2: like? I think so um uh, it was a deconstructing phase in the most positive constructing ways mm-hmm. um you know if if you look at deconstruction as saying okay uh, um I'm I'm going to reverse Rene Descartes so Descartes started with his just own existence and tried to build out to faith from there um, uh, I already had a faith, so I needed to reverse engineer it and start taking that faith apart to see if it were, was, was rational, to see if it made sense. And for me, that was always a comparative mode. So I would compare what does faith look like next to no faith. And then I would compare what does faith look like compared to the faith, perhaps, of Islam or uh, Buddhism or Hinduism? Uh, what does it? Com- how does it meet itself out in comparison to other things? And so there's a definite deconstruction, but it's a positive construction in the process because I'm comparing it constantly to other models, if that makes any sense at all.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, I'm going to throw the obvious question. I can picture some of my non-Christian friends asking, okay, Ezra... You're three white guys on a podcast. You're in America, right? Your faith is a geographical construct, right? If you were in Indonesia, you'd be Muslim. You're in America, you're Christian. What do you say to a person like that? Well, I, I say that it's very possible I might
2: start out, if, if I'm in, in India, I might start out Hindu. Um, I hope that I would be questioning enough to try to find ultimate truth. And I don't think that I would end up a Hindu, if I went through that process. I explain it like this. God has made us and hardwired us for truth. When we see truth, we grab hold of it. We embrace it. We lean on it. We build on it. Truth is something that's, that's, that's part of the fiber of our being, and, and we can identify it and, and grasp it. And and the way that that works itself out is as humanity seeks significance and meaning in life, we grow into this area that we call religion. And religion, for some, is an expression that's found in Hinduism. For some, it's found in the Muslim uh, faith. For some, it's found in different things. And I think all of those have certain elements of truth within them, and people will grab a hold of that truth. For example... The Muslim faith teaches that God is one, and that unity uh, 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 and indivisibility of of the Muslim truth has a certain degree of truth to it, but it loses the complexity of the multi-personed singular God that's there in the Christian faith. So you can find in other faiths certain elements of truth that cause them to grow and cause people to adhere to them, but it's not the truest, fullest picture. In some areas, it stands in conflict with the way the world really is. And I like the Christian understanding of of faith in God because it's the only one that makes sense to me when I put the hard questions of life to it. Uh, The other systems all fail. So maybe if I was born there, I'd start out with the other. But I think if I were asking the hard questions of life, I would have to abdicate those other faiths. And if I had the Christian faith in front of me, I feel certain that's the one I would grab hold of.
1: So what would be a question that you would say, the Christian worldview answers this question in a more complete way? Than uh, a different worldview. Can, can you give us a couple of examples? Sure. So I put about five questions
2: out there that, that I have as my test questions, if you will, to see if a worldview is one that makes sense. And the first question is Does it make sense of the world outside of me? Uh, it, it, you know, if you look at a lot of people today, are what are called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And these are people who say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And some of them, for example, will embrace astrology. I saw in, uh, uh, on the news today a big feed that something's happening on Mars and its ascendancy that's got all the astrology buffs very concerned about the implications for the world. Well, uh, that, that, th- there is a spiritual truth, I think, that there is uh, something beyond humanity that helps guide and shape history, okay? But I don't think that the stars in some astrology sense could possibly be the answer, because what we know is the stars are made up of atoms that have started sharing electrons with each other to become molecules that have then started reacting to each other as they pull together, And they form various uh, celestial uh, stars and planets and comets and dust and things like that. The idea that this impersonal space dust is going to intervene into human history in ways that are going to dictate my emotions and how I feel because of where it was in space when I was born that doesn't really make sense of the world and the way it is. Uh, a, a second question that I ask is, does it make sense of me and who I am? Uh, uh, and I look at, at faiths like the Hindu faith and the Buddhist faith. They don't make that good a sense of who I am. They seem to, to uh, for example, Buddhism is going to teach me that I need to have an acceptance of suffering because all of life is suffering. Well, there is suffering in life. Don't get me wrong. They've got an element of truth there. But there's also such deep joy that, that gives a suffering definition, if you will. But, but it's joy that can be experienced and can be relished and can be loved. And more than that, it's joy that we can seek for other people. In other words, I don't just say, hey, yeah, life is hard and then you die. Have a good day. I say, life is hard, but let's make it better for people. Let's pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's seek to make this world a better place and and to get rid of suffering. That makes more sense with the way I think and the way I am. And so there, there, there are, like I say, about five really good questions I ask, but that won't maybe bore people too much just to throw those two out.
0: I'm curious your perspective as a lawyer, so you wrote, uh, it was your first book, Christianity on Trial. Was that your first? Or first book,
2: uh, first book with IVP. I've I've written okay. uh, a number of other books, but
0: okay. Yeah. So first one with IVP, Christianity on Trial, and then second one, Atheism on Trial. Your perspective as a lawyer, what? How did you approach writing this, um, and how did you become a lawyer? That transition from Bible college to that 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 um, uh, career path.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I'll do the transition first. I wanted to to either teach Hebrew or Greek on a, on a college level, or I wanted to be a preacher. And, and so I got the dual degrees that would allow me to do uh, either, though I'd have to go to graduate school, obviously, for the Hebrew and Greek professorship type stuff. Um, and, and I realized that that was my passion. But I also realized that if I could get a tent making degree, if I could get a law degree, that would pay the bills, then I could always do my passion because I wanted to, but I would never do it because I had to. And it's been a marvelous opportunity for me to, you know, when I write books, I don't need to worry about the royalties. And so I give them away. Uh, I, I give away copies of my books right and left because I'm I, the, the income is not the issue. Uh, I'm allowed to be a tent maker. I try cases on a national level We've had success uh, coast to coast through the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, some some incredible opportunities to take care of people in the court system. Um, and so uh, uh, what I've done as a lawyer has enabled me to write these books. But the books themselves, they're written like a lawyer would write a book. So I sit here and I say, OK, you know, I, I, look at what I've done in courts. I've I've i uh, uh, taken on the pharmaceutical industry to get Viox off the market. I, I, I've taken on uh, Johnson & Johnson to get baby powder with asbestos-laced talc off the market. I've taken on uh, the opioid manufacturers to to restore some measure of sanity to our communities that have just had these Un, un, uh, incredible amounts of, of uh, heroin, legalized heroin, sent to them. So, so I, I can do those types of things legally, but then I ask myself, all right, if instead my chore was trying the Christian faith, you know, we go back to where, where you and Dave started the book. If you look at my Christianity on trial book, one of the chapters that I have in there is entitled The Audacity of the Resurrection. You know, I mean, how would I try to prove the resurrection to someone who said, give me a reason to believe it? You know, if I had 12 jurors in a box, how would I go about producing a a case either for the fundamentals of the Christian faith? Is there a God? What kind of God? Uh, Would this God have an interest in me? What does this God have to say about me? Is it reasonable to think this God would communicate through scripture? Is there really such thing as a resurrection? You know, is there a future hope? That's in that book. And then the second book that I did was this one of atheism and agnosticism on trial. I say, okay, if I had to try a case and I was against some of the world's outspoken atheists or agnostics, how would I go about putting the case on trial? Now, we're all products of our experience, and my experience as a lawyer informs my approach, but I'm remiss if I don't add that among our five children, our son has uh, a, an undergraduate degree in philosophy. He took his master's and doctorate in philosophy at, at Oxford University in, in England. And, and I got to know so many of his friends that were f- his degrees in philosophy and logic. So many of his friends that, that were studying this at Oxford. And it was so fascinating to talk to the atheists and the agnostics and to really put them to the test because these are thinking people. And so I approached it as a lawyer. How would I, if I were trying this case against them, how would I go about doing it with the jury? And that's what the book is.
0: I think that's interesting because, okay, going back to something you said earlier, doing it because you want to rather than you need to. And I think secretly, I think many pastors, that's a tension that they feel, that they love what they do, but there's some days that they feel like, man, I, I have to give up, get up and give another Easter sermon. That's different, right, than, than the ones that, I, that I've done before. Um, and so th- that part of it, I think, is just so fascinating to me and how, how your approach, able to set that aside as a career path and be able to do it just because you love it. Um, I don't know. I, I think that is just such a fascinating thing for me. And, and so in your interactions with all these different skeptics, do you find that most people that you've interacted with, they approach it from this logical perspective or is there an element of emotion, experience? How do people kind of process truth? Well, Ezra
2: and Dave, I think that different people fall in different buckets. Uh, there are a lot of people who are atheists because they feel like God let them down. I, I think it's an emotional thing. And these are some thoughtful people. I mean, These are some people like uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, who's, who's a well-publicized atheist, who's written— Has your the, son had
0: any interactions with him at all?
2: Um, uh, only in the sense of passing in the street. Um, yeah. I've got other people. I had lunch last week with John Lennox, who is a, a splendid, yeah. uh, mathematician out at Oxford. And, and Yeah, we've got, a, we've got a place in Oxford. So we're there a lot. Uh, hmm. I was having lunch with him last week and he had debated Dawkins and he and I were having this very dialogue and he says, you know, um, uh, somewhere in the past, he really believes Richard was hurt. You know, Richard Hmm. was brought up in a faith tradition and was initially a person of faith. You go to Bart Ehrman, one of America's favorite uh, or most famous uh, atheists, and and Bart grew up a believing Christian, so he says, and and yet it was the problem of suffering, what what God failed to do with his sister, that drove him to question whether or not God was real. And I, I think you've got a bucket of people who who just feel like. I, I'll show you, God, I won't yes. believe in you because you let me down. Um, yeah, and on the surface,
0: they'll say it's a rational argument, but oh, yeah. man, you have to be so careful there, don't you? Like When you're talking, you're saying, okay, I'm going to give them a rational response, but then all of a sudden realizing, okay, wait, there is an element—I mean, Dave, we've talked about this a little bit, right? There's an element to personal experience that undercuts yeah. their perspective, right?
1: Yeah, it seems rational— it seems like something that would come out from them would be so rational because they're writing. I mean, Bart Ehrman is, uh, he's, he's got some decent stuff. And then also in the blender is some like really problematic things. And if, you know, yeah, there, there does seem to be a lot of the folks that I know that are very anti God have been deeply hurt in, in the context of a community of faith. And that, Honestly, it's really sad, too, uh, because imagine the the blessing that a uh, somebody like Richard Dawkins or Bart Ehrman could be to the Christian community, you know, if they weren't outside of it. So do you do you do you recommend, Mark, like somebody like uh, read Bart Ehrman books? Do you, do you if you talk to?
2: No, I don't. Um, uh, I find his books, you know, Bart. Well, it depends. Let me answer it that way. Bart writes two sets of books. He writes one set for academia that are really good. He's a very good Greek scholar. And so he translated a lot of the, the early church fathers. And, and his Greek work in that arena is really good. And, and I've, I use it and I go back to it and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's fine. But then he writes popular works. And his popular works read like the works of a high school debater. And I don't know if you know Bart or not, but Bart was a very good high school debater. Came out in Kansas. He and I are about the same age. We both debated in high school and he was very good. And, and he still approaches things like a little high school debater. And so on the surface, they read in a way that will scare people to death away from their faith. And you've got to be able to read it with a critical eye to discern yeah. where it is he's using logical tricks yeah, there was a seminal paper that came out in 1937 by a guy named Wright W. R. I. G. H. T. It's a peer-reviewed paper that a lot of people in communication courses will 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 read. But he talked about the difference between persuasion and propaganda, and there are seven ways that, that should, should make your antenna go up to, to see, this is propaganda, not proper persuasion. And uh, you know, with all due respect to Bart, uh, he uses propaganda techniques uh, uh, and, and that's not ethical persuasion. So unless you're well-versed at parsing through that, or you're reading with someone who's well-versed, uh, I would be hesitant to recommend his books. Frankly, I think it's kind of a waste to recommend his books. Um, uh, there's so much better stuff to be read.
0: Yeah. I want to highlight something you said there, because I was thinking about this last night. I was listening to, uh, uh, biography on uh, Benjamin Franklin and um, I think Walter Isaacson, great, great uh, uh, historian and and writer. And as you know, Benjamin Franklin would have been more in the DS camp, right? And he, um, and so you go and you listen to his arguments and they kind of sound sometimes a little bit persuasive and, oh, wow. Okay. Everything kind of blends together. Everything feels good. But then you start, you start following the natural outworkings okay, well, his close relations, right? He had very few close relations. And then his kids and family and all this stuff, and where it, it, his worldview led him to go, then you get a fuller picture. And I, I, Mark, when you would interact with people that read, say, like Dawkins, for me, when I read that and I see some of his stuff, I can see the natural, um, kind of the nasty attitude sometimes that comes through in that. But... For a lot of people that you would have, that maybe you have skeptics that would read that, do they buy it right away? What's what's yes? So
2: Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. I have a lawyer buddy of mine uh, from up north named Shep. Uh, I won't use his last name, but Shep sent it to me, and he he said, you know, I thought this was really persuasive. Now Shep's reading it as as an agnostic. And yeah. uh but he wanted my my thoughts in reply. I think I may have sent him Alistair McGrath's uh, uh response, uh, the the Dawkins delusion, right. um which which was a really good response. Alistair's just a brilliant fella and a good friend. Um, uh, I, my book wasn't out yet, but I did send Shep a copy of my book, uh, Atheism on Trial, once it did come out. I haven't heard back from him. It's been a few weeks. Um, uh, but but uh, I, I think that some people, especially who are already leaning that way, find these writings uh, uh, persuasive. They seem to give them the ammunition. There's a, a learning shortcut our brains take. Uh, uh, it's, it's called confirmation bias. Yeah. And your listeners can Google that and come up with a wealth of things. But it, it, it's the fact that we tend to interpret evidence and listen to arguments that substantiate what we already believe.
0: And it's something and, that's and got got worded in a way that substantiates the way we believe. I, I think that's key for my generation, right? If you talk in a way that is very intellectual sounding and reasoned and kind of like a little bit passive and, and you kind of slip in some things here and there that is very, very persuasive, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and,
2: and, and what the, the Christians need to do is we need to be thoughtful people. We mm-hmm. need to give thought to this and, and do it along the lines of what you were saying before, Ezra, and, and that is, uh, uh, where does this lead? You know, what's the end result? Uh, that, that actually is question number five of my five big questions is, does this make for a good society and good people? Um, yeah. because uh, a lot of these things do not. And, and, and if people understood the poison that was in them, they'd be a bit more careful before they just wholesale adopted it.
0: Uh, well, one quick thought, uh, Dave, I know I'm cutting you off here, but uh, I'm, I'm on a Benjamin Franklin kick here, so he's fresh in my, I'm in my mind right now. Um, but what would you say, right, to people like him, who would, uh, he wrote a letter to someone, I forget who it was, basically said, hey, leave Christians alone, Right, who was kind of outspoken against Christians because it leads for a good moral society and essentially um, people need some people if they're weaker right they need religions essentially as a crutch uh, to get through life and just let people believe what they believe uh, because it makes for a better society um, but when it comes right down to it no obviously we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead what do you say yeah like that? I mean
2: yeah it, it's it's fascinating to me in other words lie to people so that deluded those people will make my life better because I live in this world and I'd like it to be a better world. That, that is when you strip it down is what they're saying. They're saying, you know, you know better and I know better, but let's go ahead and lie to everybody else. Now, I, my, my big problem with that is, uh, first of all, uh, people won't want to say it in those terms, but those really are the terms that they're using. They won't wanna say it because they're gonna feel a little guilty about saying let's lie to everybody to make our life better. But that's what they're saying. And so I would go to them, yeah, I'd go to them right there and say, first of all, does it bother you at all to say it that way? To say, I'm gonna lie to people to make my life better. Because if it bothers you at all to say that, we need to examine why. And if it doesn't bother you at all, then you won't mind if i lie to you to make my life better because you'll yeah. understand that's a fair thing to do and so yep. we've got playing terms here and then their reaction is going to be no 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 let, let's don't go that far you know it's not livable that you can't live in this world in society like that
0: mm.
1: yeah that's interesting as and i were talking uh before you came on mark uh with what's going on we've had some as has had uh, um some missionary acquaintances of ours on from Ukraine several times, and um, just to see that in the world right now and it seems like everybody from everywhere it seems to be condemning that is so evil and it is right But I think the Christian worldview has you know one of your questions here I'm looking at it right now page sixty four is there objective right and wrong? you know to somebody that truly doesn't believe in some sort of objective standard, how do you look at that and say, oh, that's so evil? Like, by what standard do you, do you judge that evil? Does that make sense? I think, I think the, as a worldview test, Christianity, even, even folks that are not Christian, they still recoil when they see some of this footage that's coming out of there. And my question would be, why does that bother you so much? Why, on what basis can you say that is wrong? I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, Dave, I agree
2: 100%. In fact, I've I've often uh, incurred the wrath of some people when I have said, if you give me a jury of thoughtful atheists, I think I could walk Adolf Hitler at Nuremberg. Um, My reasoning would be this. What Hitler did, killing 6 million plus Jews, killing countless people that were physically disabled, uh, killing uh, people of uh, different sexual persuasions, all of those people incurred his wrath. And, and, And if you don't think that there's objective right and wrong, if you truly believe that all we are is cosmic space dust and everything's arbitrary, then look at what the argument would be for Hitler if you're his lawyer. The argument would be as follows. Hey, All you and I are is a result of evolution. We're cosmic space dust that has evolved to this state. Now, it's going to continue to evolve. And Nietzsche says that one day we will have an Ubermensch, a Superman, that will look back on people today the same way we look back on monkeys. And oh, by the way, we have no trouble doing medical experiments on monkeys to make our life better. There are a limited amount of resources in this world. There's a limited amount of food, a limited amount of fuel, a limited amount of of capital that we've got. Why waste it on that which is more ill-suited to breed us into a better evolution? Let's instead use it on the best breeding stock we have so that we can help propel evolution and bring about a greater humanity and a greater world. Now that's not the way we read Hitler's arguments because we beat him and the people who write Hitler's arguments up are generally either Christians or they believe in objective right and wrong, whether they have got any reason to or not. But you give me a group of thoughtful atheists and what do you say to someone like Hitler? Oh no, we think that that's wrong. We think we should give our resources out pell-mell to anybody even if they're bad breeding stock? Well, we don't treat cattle that way. We don't treat plants that way. Why should we treat humans that way if all we are is cosmic space dust, a sack of chemicals, if you will? And and I think that your argument, Dave, makes incredible sense. That this is why I don't think it bothers Putin at all to be doing what he's doing.
1: Big deal. To 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 kind of like tag on that to the other side. So if I'm so if, when I was at the university, some of the, the the comments that would come to me when people would find found out that I was a Christian, the, and, and you've mentioned it in your book, you know, Christianity, uh, or some of the world's, you know, atrocities were committed in the name of Christianity. I mean, sort of a, a very classic, you know, um, and, and, and frankly with the rise of social media and the polarity of politics. And there is just, there's a lot of, uh, Christian media out there that doesn't seem to, um, represent Christ very well. Um, And so they say like, hey, you know, you actually are doing more harm than good. My response always was like, first of all, admission, yeah, we've really failed to live up to our holy calling, number one. But also, those people that have done that kind of wrong went against the person and teachings of Christ. And so somehow calling them back maybe maybe comment on that when you're talking to somebody like that has a a hard pushback, especially maybe they've been hurt by by someone in the community of faith. How do you respond to somebody like that? Because obviously, when we're in these conversations, uh, back in the day, I really just wanted to fight with people and win. I remember so many conversations in my early 20s uh, as a, a waiter at the Bob Evans down here in Newport, Kentucky. Everyone wanted to fight with me when they found out I went to Bible club, And I honestly would smoke them and then go away thinking, but like, now they're just mad at me, and this conversation didn't lead anyone to faith. I just, like, stomped on them. Can you can you tell me maybe how you would respond to somebody that has those questions of, um, hasn't Christianity done more harm than good? What about the Crusades, like the standard fare? How do you respond in love to someone like that? Well, I think the key is what you just said. You respond in love.
2: And, and I love your admission that, that in the name of Christianity, um, many atrocities have been done, but also in the name of Christianity, many incredible, good, sacrificial things have been done. And what we need to do are be people of discernment to discern between what is real and authentic and what is fake. And, and so it's a nice lead-in. Uh, you know, IVP has published these two books we've been talking about, but right now in their care is volume three of the trilogy, which is World Religions on Trial. And it's interesting because two of the religions I put on trial, uh, one is what I call secular spirituality. These are people who say that I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. But the second group I put on trial are the very Christian so-called, that you're talking about. It's secular Christianity. These are the people who claim to be religious but aren't spiritual. It's the obverse. And so much of what's in the media today is stuff where I just want to stand up anytime I'm around unbelievers or questioning people and say, whatever you're reading about these people on the media that in the name of Jesus are slamming other people, are being harsh and judgmental and and, in ways that are are not loving, but are hateful and spiteful. um, That's not what I believe in. That is not the God I believe in. That's not the faith I believe in. And I go to that passage of scripture where Paul told the Corinthians that Satan uh, disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive people. Or I'll go to Peter's reference to Satan as a roaring lion seeking to devour. And I say, of course, in the authentic circles, you're going to find people that are disingenuous, that wear the cloak, but this is the expression of a wolf in sheep's clothing and do not be beguiled by the label they wear. Christ said you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their love. You know, I, you know I, I, I think we've got to wage that ground, but we've got to do it in a loving way, or we're no better than the
1: people that are out there uh, uh, giving Christianity a bad name. But isn't there like a two-sided war almost? Because on one hand, you're kind of—you have to be very clear, especially to non-Christians— like, that is not, that is not, that's misrepresenting what it means to be a Jesus follower. And also to be clear and not mushy or blurry about certain truths that are, like, we can't be wishy-washy about the resurrection, for example, but we also can't, you know, the 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 tone of, like, atheist is owned by Christian, you know, the catch titles on YouTube, like, I don't... I don't think the goal. Paul's goal was never to own anybody. It was, hey, I've I've become to the Jews, the Jews, the Greek. I, I will do anything to bring this person into the Christian community, into full fellowship with with us and with with God. And I, I just long for that kind of tone where we're neither mushy and we're and we're not spiteful. If, if that makes yeah, sense. yeah, Paul
2: puts those two together pretty good when he says to speak the truth in love. And, and there's a lot we can say to hold on to the truth. So there's a, a university system, where I, a Christian university, where I serve on the board of trustees. And one of the issues we've got right now is with the federal government and the laws that are coming into place and the interpretation of those laws, uh, how do we take a biblical view on the, the issue of sexuality and yet not forego our right for our students to have federal loans and things of that nature? And and how do we do this with other people who are of different views of, of sexuality uh, than the, the biblical view? How do we hold to our truth and yet show them love and respect and and reach them uh, uh wherever they are to to grow them to to the Lord or to grow them closer to the Lord. And and it's a huge debating point but but part of it's got to be both ends of that coin. We can hold to what we believe to be true and we can express what we believe to be true in ways that that are a fragrant incense in ways that that you know, I, hey, I, I got to tell you, for example, on the issue of sexuality, If I were of a gay or lesbian lifestyle and I believed that I was born with it, that it's genetically part of who I am, I would be absolutely petrified of a world where the atheists were in charge. Because the Christians are the ones who say everyone, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of your DNA, regardless of how you're born with or without IQ or whatever it may be, everyone as an image bearer of God is of value. That's a Christian doctrine. In the world's eyes, if you genetically don't seem to measure up to certain things, you do not necessarily carry the same value as someone who does. The idea of everybody being created equal, that is a Christian idea. And the further we get from a Christian civilization and understanding, the further we'll drift from that idea back into the ideas of of the Third Reich. And so I I try to talk to people about these things, but I try to do it with compassion and love because ultimately there's not a person on this planet I'll ever talk to that Jesus didn't love enough to die for. I mean, if you go back Monday, Thursday last week in Holy Week was the day we celebrate Jesus washing the feet of his apostles. Go back and read the story. He washes Judas's feet as well. It's before Judas leaves. He becomes like a slave to Judas to show his love and service. I mean, that's the Lord we've got, and that should temper all of our interactions with whomever we're talking.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, You know, I think as you were sharing there, I think one of the challenges we face in especially Western culture is that so many of the arguments that people will make, maybe, uh, you know, we can be a good moral society without ascribing to a a Christian worldview, uh, come from people that hold many Christian viewpoints, and they don't necessarily even realize it, right? And then the, those flavor the the words that they use. Well, uh, and just in closing here, um, benzene. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, sure. Ten thousand times the limit. Okay, that was probably one of the most interesting points of the book, and I wanted you to share this 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 story here because this was really fascinating. G- give us the whole backdrop. And but right. you talk about the importance of do we really believe? Right, do we right, really right. Believe and how that flows. So,
2: go. I, I, I'm <laughs> always curious about the difference between what someone genuinely believes and what they say they believe, and and the proof is in the pudding. We know all those types of expressions. Well, I had a case one time where I was trying this case, and and the premise behind the case was uh, what used to be the UMBEL oil company, now it's Exxon, had had a blowout. About 600 feet below the surface, where the casing, the actual pipe bringing up the petroleum products, severed. And 10,000 astrodomes, I was trying in Houston, the astrodome Mm -hmm. is a Houston measurement. 10,000 astrodomes of benzene leaked into the water
0: supply.
1: Yeah, that's crazy.
2: Yeah, and they never told anybody. They just covered it up. And over time, that benzene migrated down to a water well of a subdivision. And so for five years, these people are drinking and bathing and showering and watering their lawns with water that's got over 10,000 times the legal level of benzene. So I tried this case for five plaintiffs, including one young boy who had benzene-induced leukemia. And, and the the defense of the case included the purchase, I'll use that word, renting of a witness who claimed to be an expert who actually got on the stand and said, you can have 10,000 times the legal level of benzene in water, and it won't hurt you at all. And that was his testimony. And so the next day, I got to cross-examine him. And overnight, I had gotten a, a, a jar of of water, a mason jar, and I'd had the chemistry department at Rice University, a well-known university, put in it and certified that it had 10,000 times the legal level of benzene in it. So the next day I started a cross-examination with this witness and I looked at him and I said, sir, you told us yesterday that you didn't think that that level of benzene was poisonous. He says, it's not. I said, now I know they're paying you $750 or whatever it was, an hour to say this, But between you and me, what you're saying in your heart of hearts, you know, it's not true. He says, it is too. I said, no, 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 no. You're saying it for the jury, but you don't really believe it. He said, I absolutely believe it. And at that point, I pulled out the jar of benzene. He had no clue I had. And I said, well, I'm so glad to hear that because I have here a jar of benzene laced water certified 10,000 times as I guess you'll just drink it here in front of us and show us you really believe it. <laughs> and, and he was stunned. He looked like a deer in the headlights and he was like, Oh my goodness. No, he didn't never told me that he'd ask questions like this. What am I going to do? You know, if I drink it, I guess we win, but I might get leukemia and, uh, uh you know, I'm not, I'm not going to drink this. And, and and ultimately he wouldn't drink it because He could say he believed it, but the truth in his life was something altogether different. And I think Mm -hmm. so many people say they believe there is no God, but their life, their language, their love, their meaning, their purpose, their desires shows a very different truth. And that's what I try to get people to hone
0: in on. Yeah, and just the inverse, right? So many people say, "I, I believe in God. And they use that kind of as their ticket or badge, but when push comes to shove, you know, Dave, you mentioned our friend in Ukraine, right? And how many times we've brought people on this podcast, people that have gone through intense suffering. So he was in the southeastern portion of Ukraine, then finally just drove out of there. And we had him on several times. One of the nights we had him on, that was the night, like 20 minutes away. He could almost see it from his house. That was, they were shelling nuclear power plant, like right there right wow. and what's interesting is i found this over and over again people that um people that are in those tight spots and they're believers it's like their faith just rises to the surface and you see wow like that's something right and then others it's like you can it can be the most innocent thing and their faith falls apart right because there was never that grounding so yeah yeah yeah, Dave, no. you right. Yeah, any closing thoughts you had, Dave, before I wrap up here?
1: Yeah, I just would encourage people first of all to, to read Mark's book. The one we've uh, had a preview copy of uh, was great, and also that that this would be more than an information journey. You need good information. You need you need answers to tough questions, but there is, I think there. I think Mark would agree with this, but there, it's a reasonable faith, but there is a faith element. There's never, there's no silver bullet answer. Like as as we started off saying, yeah, I really literally believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead and that colors how I see the rest of the world. Um, and I believe there's enough reasonable evidence to say that that, that claim is true. Um, and, and also as you, get into apologetics maybe or on someone that's on a kind of a journey with this, like allow this to be more than information, but allow this information to transform you. We talked about Scott in, in Ukraine. Here's a guy that clearly put his faith. uh, He really like, of course I'd stay here. How could I leave? You know, and all of us just, our minds are blown. But it's like, if you really believe a man rose from the dead, I've got to stay. I feel like he's telling me to stay. You know, yeah. yeah, and yep. um, I, I long for this type of information to be more than to own somebody, but yeah. that it would compel us to, to reach the world, and um,
0: yeah. Mark, best places people can find you online, access your resources, so forth.
2: Yeah, biblical-literacy.org or .com uh, uh, is is where they can get it, or go on YouTube. I do a video thought for the day that's five minutes long each day of the week, uh, each weekday, I should say, and they're all under YouTube under biblical-literacy or under Mark Lanier, L-A-N-I-E-R. Uh, my teachings each week are simulcast on the internet, and uh, uh, I would... Uh, uh, if anybody wants one of my books and can't afford them, just uh, email me. I'll be glad to send them one gratis and uh, uh, just urge people to think through their faith and to live it as a genuine faith of love.
0: When's, so Christianity and Trial, Atheism and Trial, then, in addition to other books you've written, when's the next one come out? Any ideas? Yeah, so so by the end of the year, we should have World Religions
2: on Trial by IVP, and then Baylor uh, Publishing Press is putting out my third set of devotional books, uh, which are devotionals on the life of Christ based upon the Christian calendar. Uh, I've already done one on the Torah, uh, the Old Testament first five books, the Torah devotional book, and one on the Psalms. So that, that book will be coming out as well.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for joining us.
2: My pleasure. God blessings on you guys and what you're doing and on your listeners.
0: You've been listening to the
1: Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.